Welcome to the Global Research News Hour in the summer. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaki, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiowak and the Nakota. My name is Michael Welch. What follows is the third installment of our series on the four great assassinations of the 1960s period. Earlier installments featured the murders of John F. Kennedy and Robert F. Kennedy. Tonight, we cover the death of the celebrated civil rights leader, Martin Luther King. It was April 4, 1968, when he was murdered at 6 in the evening by one lone assassin, James Earl Ray. But in fact, the death, as with the previous two murders, was carried out by military intelligence and members of the Memphis Police Department taking us through the last turbulent moments of this Baptist minister's life, we are joined once again by the researcher, historian, and major investigator of the assassinations of the 1960s, James Eugenio. He is the author of Destiny Betrayed, expanded in 2012, JFK Assassination, The Evidence Today in 2018, and co-editor with Lisa Pease, of the Assassinations, Probe magazine on JFK, MLK, RFK, and Malcolm X, published in 2003. Regular updates from himself and numerous other research can be found at the site kennedysandking.com. Here now is that conversation. Let's divert right into this subject. Um, Perhaps you can start by explaining what brought Dr. King to Memphis in the first place, uh, the, what, what was he planning to do at that time? Well, the visit to Memphis, um, where he was assassinated, was actually his second visit to Memphis. All right. Um, his advisors had recommended that he take part in this uh, sanitation workers strike, all right? And he had been there a couple of weeks prior to this uh, last uh, visit, okay, which was in April, all right? What had happened at the previous visit is that due to a disturbance okay, uh, caused by a local group called the Invaders, the demonstration had devolved into a kind of near riot, all right? And uh, there was looting and the smashing of windows, etc. all right? And it was a very, um, King was very disappointed in the way it turned out, all right? And so he decided that the best thing to do would be to go back and try and and do it the right way, all right? And this had then resulted in his assassination. Now, due to the circumstances around this, Many, many people have suspected 
because right off the bat, there's a couple of very weird things going on. There's a famous photograph of several of King's uh, cohorts, including, I think, Ralph Abernathy on the balcony of his room at the Lorraine Motel, all right? One of the guys there is like kneeling down over his body and pointing to a direction where he thought the shot came from. That guy turned out to be a gentleman named Merrill McCullough, all right? Merrill McCullough was a member of the group called the Invaders, all right? Which, as I said, <clears throat> was the group that was one of the people involved in the disturbance the first time around. And so what happened is they later turn out that Merrill McCullough <clears throat> was an undercover agent, okay? Uh, and he had been working with the local police, all right? He then later, there's a very famous incident. Many years later, when the King assassination was back in the news, all right, um, somebody said that Merrill McCullough works for the CIA. How many years was this? This was in the 90s. Okay, oh, this okay. is about 1996 or something. Okay, got it. And so, so Sam Donaldson, a newsman for ABC, <clears throat> goes ahead and he calls the CIA headquarters and he gets a desk officer and he says, do you have a Merrill McCullough working there? And the guy looks through the directory and he says, yes, we do. All right. And he goes, do you mind getting him for me? So he patches him through to Merrill McCullough. And Donaldson says, words of the effect, are you the Merrill McCullough that's on that famous picture of the balcony at the Lorraine Motel? Okay. Pointing to where you thought the shot came from. And he goes, yes. And he goes, how long have you worked for the CIA? He said, 17 years. Okay. So this is one of the very, very odd things about King's assassination. Yeah. Now, another, the, another odd thing is this, that <clears throat> somebody changed the room that King was supposed to be staying in at the Lorraine Motel. To this day, nobody knows who changed the room. But a guy came in a few days before, all right, and said, see, because King's original room was not facing outward towards the street. It was, it was a courtyard room, okay? So in other words, you very likely could not have pulled off the assassination the way you did if the room had not been changed, okay? And it's, it's absolutely amazing to me that nobody has ever figured out who the person was who changed the room so it would be facing the street. All right? Yeah, there, 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 there were a number of strange circumstances that caused the King Group to 
actually to deviate from their original plans. And I mean, you mentioned the room uh, being moved for one thing. I mean, the fact is coincidences, coincidences do sometimes happen, but the more coincidences that occur, the more you have to wonder about a conspiracy. I mean, can you list some other coincidences that took place uh, in, in addition to just changing of the room? All right. Now, we're supposed to believe that this James Earl Ray guy went ahead and killed King from a communal bathroom at Bessie's boarding house, okay? Right. Bessie's, Bessie's boarding house is this kind of flop house down the street a little on the other side of the street. All right. Well, very, very, it's very, very strange for two reasons. The Paris Match, this big magazine, kind of the equivalent of Life magazine, in France, they went to this communal bathroom. Okay, and by the way, I want everybody to understand what I say when I mean a communal bathroom. All right, this was a bathroom for an entire floor. Okay, all right, it wasn't like an individual bathroom for a room. So, in other words, in other words, whoever used that bathroom to kill. King would not know if there's somebody else sitting outside waiting to use the bathroom. Yeah, there could be a lineup outside for all you know. <laughs> like, for instance, when I go to the corner bakery, my restaurant here, okay, a lot of the time there's people waiting outside to use the bathroom. Okay, well, that's the situation here. You wouldn't know, you know, well, if, if I burst out of this room with a gun in my hand, is there going to somebody? <laughs> See, this, this is how silly, you know, this thing gets. All right. All right. Well, anyway, the Paris match got into that bathroom. All right. And they tried to arrange a way that Ray could go ahead and stand. The, the, there's an elevated window. Okay, it's not a floor to ceiling window. And so they did a very funny picture about how Ray would have to be almost a contortionist in order to get around and stand up in the bath on the rim of the bathtub and get his rifle out. Okay, and go ahead and take the shot. Okay, so now the problem was for the authorities to place James Earl ray in that bathroom okay all right and so they went ahead and they found a witness okay that would place him in that bathroom except there was a big problem he was there with his common law wife okay and she said that there's no way in the world that he was out there in the hallway because he was in the room with me and he was stone drunk. Okay. All right. There's no way in the world that he could possibly have identified uh, James Earl Ray as the assassin. Now, in addition to all this, in addition to all this, there's the problem that 
a lot of people thought the shot didn't come from that direction. They thought the shot came from below. And in fact, there was a New York Times reporter on the scene, a guy named Earl Caldwell, who said that he thought the shot came from below the room. Okay. All right. And so what happens? What happens the next morning? Miraculously, the city commissioner goes ahead and orders all the bush and all the trees, et cetera, from that area to be chopped down. Now, <laughs> why on earth would you do such a thing? Okay. Uh, well, one thing it would do, of course, it would eliminate the evidence that an assassin could be hiding, you know, in all those bush and small trees down below. But there's really, and I've seen pictures of it. Day before, you see all the bush and small trees. Day after, it's all gone. Okay? So th th this is like some of the really, really weird stuff you get into with the King assassination. If I could just ask you, like, one point about Merrill McCullough. Um, yeah, Merrill McCullough. Merrill McCullough. Um, when he was – you said he pointed to where, where he thought the shot was coming from. Yes. Was he pointing towards with the, 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 the rest – or the, the bathroom where uh, yes. James yes. Ray was? Oh, yeah. boy. Yeah. Okay. It, 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 it was in that direction. All right. Now, now in addition to, in, in, in addition to all this – you have the problem of James Earl Ray and Raul, okay? Now, this is a very, very interesting story because James Earl Ray was being manipulated by a shadowy figure that he called Raul, okay? And Raul has all the earmarks of being some kind of CIA career, okay? And he's essentially maneuvering uh, James Earl Ray around, okay? And, and, and he would give him certain missions to do, okay? And he, would, and he would give him a lot of money also, okay, to go ahead and do them, all right? And so it's, it's, it's Raul who goes ahead and sends him to memphis okay telling him that he'll get back to him about what he wants him to do now james Earl ray was completely consistent with this story from the very beginning he said i was there because we're all wanted me to be there all right now on top of that it was raul who went ahead and told him to pick up the game master rifle okay, that was going to be used in the King assassination. But of course, he didn't know that. All right. Okay. And so now, and by the way, by the way, a very important point that needs to be elucidated here. Anybody who knows anything about rifles, okay, knows that when you buy a rifle, okay, and you buy it off the rack, that you have to do something called calibrating the, the scope and the rifle, 
In other words, you have to match up the hairlines uh, on the scope, okay, with the barrel of the rifle so it will fire accurately. There's two ways you can do this, all right? One, you can do it manually, okay, all right, by going to a rifle range and firing off shots. And sooner or later, after three or four shots, you'll find just the way to go ahead and align the scope with the rifle. Or the iron sights with the rifle. That's the other way that you can aim a rifle. All right. Okay. Or you have a machine calibrator at the place you buy it. Okay. Well, it turns out that the place where uh, Ray purchased that rifle did not have a machine calibrator. Okay. And everyone knows that James O. Ray was not a very highly skilled marksman. So in other words, how on earth did he go ahead and calibrate the rifle? Okay. So th this is another very serious problem that, that we have in this case. Especially in a, that bizarre yoga-like position you have to get into in order to get one shot off. Right. And, that's in, and this is another problem. I'm glad you mentioned that. Because unlike with the JFK case, in which the official story has three shots being fired, Okay, in this case, it's one shot. It's one shot, okay? And no one thinks that Ray was that good of a marksman. Now, if you have a guy who's not that good of a marksman and he has an uncalibrated rifle on top of that, you know, it's very difficult to believe. So this is what you, what you said earlier. You know, one or two, what they call anomalies, Okay, you can perhaps explain away. When they start getting into the five, six, or seven anomalies, okay, and there's another one I'm gonna bring up that's really kind of mind-boggling, okay, all right, then you gotta start wondering, was somebody behind this thing, all right? Now, incredibly, even though, even though the FBI launched this terrific manhunt, okay, for James O'Ray uh, after the assassination, all right, they were not able to locate him for weeks on end, all right? It turns out that he first went south, okay, and into the deep southern quadrant, I think Atlanta, all right, then he turned north and he went to Canada, all right? One of the most amazing things about this case is that it turned out that James O'Ray had something like three identifications on him for three different men in the Toronto area that all had his general description, okay? And they all lived in something like a five mile radius of each other. Now, <laughs> now we're supposed to believe that this small time, uh, you know, uh, sm small time thief somehow managed to find three IDs for himself. Okay. And these guys all generally resembled him and they all live within something like a five mile radius in a city that he'd never been to, to before. Okay. 
people who have who have examined that phenomenon all right said there is no way on god's green earth that that could be an accident okay i mean what did the guy do did he go into the toronto uh phone directory and and but that wouldn't give you the general characteristics of what the guy looked like and then how could you possibly find out that they all live within a five mile radius of each other if you've never been to the city you know did he then sit there with a map and then <laughs> so you know it gets too silly to go ahead and even think about and so what many people believe is that he was working with some kind of identity specialist okay yes. all right and he did use these aliases right and so it just it it, it just seems very very bizarre that a small time hood like james o'ray could go ahead and pull off uh that kind of feat which only seems to me to be possible if you knew somebody in the intelligence community who could who could do that kind of thing for you yeah. okay now now james o'ray is finally captured at heathrow airport okay and he's then brought back uh to uh memphis all right his first attorney, a guy named Haynes, was determined to go ahead and go ahead and have a full trial because he thought he would win. Okay. He thought that, and he, by the way, he even refused the plea bargain. Okay. From the state. All right. Which I, I think, if I remember correctly, that would have gotten off Ray in something like 10 to 12 years. All right. The strongest piece of evidence that he had, okay, was that the owner of the novelty shop below the boarding house, okay, said that someone had dropped a suitcase that had James O'Ray's things in it, okay, all right, at the door of his novelty shop before King was assassinated, okay? And this included all, like, things like binoculars, the rifle, and things like that, et cetera, in it, okay, which had Ray's fingerprints on it. So that was the uh, line of evidence that led them to to search for James Ray, Ray James Earl Ray at right, that point, right? Right. Now, 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 if if you would have had that kind of a witness, who said it happened ten minutes before, okay, then it'd be very, very difficult, okay, to convict Ray of the crime, okay, and so he was ready to go to trial, all right. Now. It's very, very confusing as to how he was removed and Percy Foreman came into the case. Now, Percy Foreman was one of these very high-powered 
um, very proficient, very kind of, he had a very big name in the South, all right? And sort of like Melvin Belli at that time, all right? And so, and so to this day, it's very confusing how Foreman got into the case. All right. But he, but, but he did. All right. And so when Foreman came into the case, all right. And they signed out his first lawyer. All right. Um, that was more or less the beginning of the end for James O'Reilly. Okay. And there's many, many people, all right, who believe, and I'm I'm happen to be one of them, okay, that for whatever reasons, uh, Foreman more or less sold out his client. All right, he came into the case thinking that, like his previous. Um, he's, he's the, the previous attorney that that he was going to go ahead and somehow get him off, okay? But the interaction between Foreman and William Bradford Huey more or less sabotaged whatever defense that 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 Ray was going to have. Now, who's William Bradford Huey? William Bradford Huey was a famous author from the South who had sewn up the book rights to Ray's story. And in fact, he had actually written a couple of installments for Look Magazine was a very big nationally distributed uh, photo, kind of the equivalent of Life Magazine, a competitor for Life Magazine at that time, all right? And he had serial rights to Look Magazine, okay? He was going to write a three-part installment before he came out with his book, all right? What's really odd about Huey is that in the first two installments for Look Magazine, he essentially goes with the Raul story that Ray is being manipulated. But then when Foreman came into the case, this all changed, okay? And then the whole idea that somehow that Ray was a kind of racist who killed uh, King because he was a black leader, that suddenly took over the case. And they, they needed Huey in order to pay the attorney's fees, okay? Because he, was, he cut in Ray for a share of the attorney's fees, all right? Because Ray, of course, could not afford somebody like Percy Foreman. So then Foreman then starts putting all kinds of pressure on Ray in order to go ahead and plead guilty, okay? You know, and anybody 
who studies this case, the King case, will see that the entrance of Foreman into the case was an utterly crucial event, right? It essentially deprived Ray of a trial, okay? And, and, and that's what's so bad about what Foreman did. Foreman essentially came in, and I think he ended up being paid something like $100,000, which back then is a lot of money, okay? I think it's the equivalent of like $700,000 today. And he didn't do anything. And that's the worst part. Hmm. You know, Foreman essentially didn't do anything. He, he put all kinds of pressure on Ray, saying that, look, if you go to trial, you're going to get the electric chair. Take the plea, okay? And you'll get a long sentence in prison, and maybe you'll get out one day. All right? You know? And Ray, of course, was under all kinds... Because they had installed lights in his cell, okay? Very powerful lights that didn't go off, okay? So many, many days he would be going without any kind of sleep at all. And he ended up succumbing to Foreman. And that was essentially uh, the, the story of this case, that Ray never got his day in court, okay? Which he would have had if he would have stuck with his, with his original attorney. James D'Eugenio, a historian and researcher speaking from his home in Burbank, California on the assassination of Martin Luther King in April of 1968. The topic is part three of a summer series airing on the Global Research News Hour, a show funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. The show is also broadcast on other community radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. My name is Michael Welch. Here again is more of that conversation. Now... In my opinion, this is another very odd thing. Foreman was never able to produce the letter that he said he got from either Ray or Ray's brother soliciting his services. That's how he said he got into the case. Okay. But he was never able to produce the letter that he said he got. Now, if he never got a letter, then what he did was unethical. You're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to just come in and ram yourself into another lawyer's case. All right. Okay. But he was never able to produce the letter. And, and he had his secretary go through all during the House Select Committee on Assassinations. He had his secretary go through all of his, you know, files to try and find the letter. And he, 
and it was never able to do it. See, I believe what happened is that Huey and Foreman essentially plotted together to go ahead and create this bamboozle of, of James Earl Ray. And I believe that they did it because it would have been much more acceptable to the powers that be, okay, than if they actually would have gone ahead and put a trial on. Because I believe that they knew that he would not be convicted, okay? And, and, and that, of course, was the result. Because when, what he did, and, and by the way, to show you how bad this is, to show you how bad this is, when a guy named uh, Emerson, okay, um, wrote a book on this case, all right. And by the way, that's let, let me if I let, let me make sure that your listeners, you know, if you want to read a good book on the case, all right, which I believe, if it's not the best, it's certainly one of the best, okay. Uh, John Avery Emerson's book, uh, The Martin Luther King Congressional Cover-Up, okay? Uh, that's a relatively recent book. It was published in 2014, all right? And I believe that is the best book we have on this case today, all right? To show you how, you know, See, this is the problem. See, but this but people don't understand. See, in the United States, I don't know what you have up in Canada, but in the United States, we have something called the adversary system uh, in, in, in the court of law. Okay. The, you have the prosecutor on one side. You have the defense attorney on the other. The defense attorney is supposed to make sure that his client gets a fair shake supposed to protect his rights all right and this includes of course you know making sure that all the court records are kosher what this guy did john avery emerson he went in to the archives at the memphis court system and he found out that the transcript was fiddled with I mean, can you imagine this? I mean, this is a, unbelievable, okay? During when, <clears throat> when Foreman pressured Ray to go ahead and take a plea, all right, there had to be a recitation of what he was pleading to, okay? And so... This was gone through in court and the judge Preston Battle went ahead and asked him a question, all right? And Ray said words of the effect, and this is what it's supposed to say, words of the effect that uh, I don't agree with the theories, I think of either Mr. Hoover or Mr. Clark. Hoover was the FBI guy and Ramsey Clark was the attorney general. He got that on the record. 
Okay. That's supposed to be the record. Well, Emerson went in to the court archivist's office and he found out that isn't what he said. That isn't what James O'Ray said. He answered the question with another question. Okay. In other words, he wanted the judge to be more specific about what the question was. So in other words, that whole thing has been tampered with. <laughs> and and, the, and now that is really, really important because when you go to appeal a case, if you can show that the court record has been adulterated, okay, and that the court record has been falsified, and that we don't know what would have happened, okay, if that question, which was replied to with a question, we don't know what Ray would have said. We don't know what Ray would have said, okay? All right? And so that's a very, very important discovery that Emerson made, all right? And he actually, when he was writing his book, he actually called Robert Blakey, who was the chief counsel of the House Select Committee. And Blakey denied that he knew about this. And so when Emerson did an interview with Leno Sanek on Black Op Radio, he said, now, Len, I'm the mayor of a small town in Mississippi with about 2,000 people. I'm working by myself. Now, you're telling me that I could find that out, but Blakey, who had this staff of 30 people and 15 lawyers, somehow, and he went on for three years, rather two years, okay, he couldn't find that out, okay? And, and so, so this becomes a very, very interesting point, okay, in this case. You know, you know why, why was the transcript altered? And what would have happened, you know, for that matter, what did happen in court that day? For sure. Okay. Uh, in case uh, you know, you just in case you just joined us, we're listening to uh, Global Research News Hour. My name is Michael Welch, and we're t- discussing this the matter of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination with G- Dean. James D. Eugenio. James, I, I want to bring us forward now, like uh, past the House uh, sec- Select House on the Committee of Assassinations to uh, 1999 when they had a civil trial. Uh, and uh, you know, this is just after James Earl Ray had died. But uh, they did found this court case. It was a civil case, actually. But they did affect re- arrive at the conclusion that James Earl Ray, in fact, did not uh, assassinate uh, G- Dr. Martin Luther King, and that it was a conspir- cons- government conspiracy. And yet, the media had no comment about it, other than you know maybe uh, the, the the Department of Justice would put forward something to to correct the the record. But I mean, it's really quite incredible uh, the level by which the media. I mean, it was a civil court, and yet it it was completely ignored. So, well, Mike. Mike, there, uh, there was actually two court proceedings, okay? Um, there was the first court proceeding, which was actually in criminal court, 
Okay. That was moved by uh, the English lawyer, William Pepper, all right? And he applied for a rehearing on the basis of new evidence in the Memphis court. The judge in that case, okay, um, Judge Joe Brown decided that he was going to go ahead and proceed uh, with a hearing with new evidence, all right? And one of the things that they were going to bring up was whether or not the rifle and the bullet that were used officially, okay, if that was really the rifle and the bullet that was actually recovered, okay? And so this hearing went along for several weeks, okay? And they were going to go ahead and use tests to that were new tests that weren't done before to see if this was the rifle and the bullet used, okay? And as Judge Joe Brown was going ahead to do the rifle tests, all right, he was removed from the case. And, and in, in our book, The Assassinations, Probe Magazine on JFK, MLK, RFK, and Malcolm X. We have a whole long section on this. We did several stories on it. It was absolutely extraordinary what happened to Judge Joe Brown. Okay. All right. And so he ended up being removed from the case. All right. And the rifle tests were not done. All right. So <clears throat> when that happened, Pepper decided to go ahead and move into civil court. All right. And unfortunately, James O. Ray had passed away by this time. The state of Tennessee would not allow him to leave the state to get a liver transplant. All right. And so what happened is that he got, Pepper got the King family. All right. And that means his, his widow and his brothers and sisters to go ahead and rather not his brothers, but there's sons and daughters to go ahead and agree to this civil trial. All right. Because there was a guy named Lloyd Jowers in Memphis. Okay. Who had a story that did not abide by the official story that he had been involved in actually handing a rifle to a guy who was not James O'Ray that morning, all right? And so Jowers, that story got on national television, all right, with Sam Donaldson on an ABC nightly news special, all right? And that exploded into the national consciousness. And this is when Pepper tried to move for the rehearing when Judge Brown was replaced, that's when Pepper decided to go to civil court. Now, in talking about what you're just saying here about the lack of any kind of attention, I, I, I'm going to tell you how bad this was. 
Here you had, here you had, for the first time since the assassination of Robert Kennedy, you actually were going to have a court trial in one of the big assassinations of the 1960s, okay? So one would think that, my God, you would have media from all over the country who wanted to cover this trial, right? Yeah. I mean, remember back then, in I think 99, that was the beginning of uh, court TV. All right. All right. So you would think they would have cameras throughout the, the trial, et cetera, and you would have, you know, people waiting to get in. You would have all these hotel rooms booked. All right. You'd have planes coming in from all over the country. All right. I can tell you right now, and this is hard to believe, but it's true. The only reporter in that courtroom every day covering that trial was for Probe Magazine, my little dinky magazine. His name is James Douglas, who then went on to write JFK and the Unspeakable. All right. He was the only guy that was there every single day. Nobody else. Now, if you want to hear something really bizarre, even the local reporter covering the King case for the Memphis appeal. He wasn't there. You know what he was doing? Whenever the trial would wrap up for the day, he would wait for Jim Douglas to come out the door and get the story (laughs) from my reporter. Okay. This is the Memphis commercial appeal. This is how crazy it was. Okay. One more thing. Even though Court TV, I think they're called True TV today, all right? But Court TV was set to cover that trial, all right? About one week before the trial was set to begin, what happens? The word comes up from above, take the crew out of there, take the cameras down, we're not going to be covering the trial. All right. Now, if you ever needed any more evidence to w- what the power elite feels and thinks about these assassinations of the 1960s, because remember, we're talking about 1999 now. We're talking about 30 years later. That institutional memory is still there. We cannot cover these trials. They're too explosive. They'll tell too much about the truth about the past. All right. And so the order came down and there was no court TV of that trial. Now, considering how the trial turned out, you know, you could understand why they didn't want to do it. Because as the trial proceeded, the they in a in a civil trial. You have the plaintiff and the defendant. Okay. All right. The plaintiff in this case was the King family. The defendant was Jowers. Okay. Well, the court held for the plaintiff's complaint. In other words, the King family and Pepper won the case. 
all right? They thought it was a conspiracy, all right? And so even with, even with nobody there, of course, what happens? What does the New York Times do? They, even though Gerald Posner was not at the trial, he was a guy that the New York Times sent out to smear the trial, okay? All right? And say it, it really wasn't a decent trial, et cetera. All right? That's how strong this institutional memory is about these cases. Yeah. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about King himself. Yeah, because uh, he, he was a, a highly regarded figure. I mean, he won a Nobel Peace Prize for his earlier work. And, uh, you know, at some point he alienated government authorities. Uh, could you maybe help us understand, like, what was the motive for the government and the, uh, the intelligence uh, agencies and the media to, to attack this man the way they did? Well, see... To understand what was going on here, I think you have to understand that King, by about 1966, okay, and going forward, the big civil rights the three, the big three civil rights bills had been passed. That is the, well, actually two of them. That is the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 was largely passed due to the Selma demonstration okay, that King had arranged, right? And so what King was now doing was broadening his scope, okay? And there are a lot of critics, both inside and outside the civil rights movement, who did not like him doing this. In other words, he was now shifting his focus to the what he what he perceived as being a very serious problem with the distribution of wealth in the United States and also the Vietnam War. And what this did, what this did is that it separated him from the White House, okay? Because of course, it was Johnson who escalated the Vietnam War, all right? In 1965, he crossed the line that Kennedy was never going to cross, which was sending combat troops into Vietnam, invading the country, getting what was the equivalent of a declaration of war, the Tonkin Gulf Resolution, okay? through Congress, all right? And so what that did, of course, is that gave the excuse for the United States to invade Vietnam, all right? And so as this went on and 
as more and more money was spent on it, what happened is that King very much disagreed with it because it was taking away from all of these so-called social programs that Johnson had promised, okay, as part of the great society, all right? Well, this drove a wedge between the White House and King, all right? And it, it was very, very, very unfortunate that this happened, but that was the case. Now, the other problem was this. Bobby Kennedy was not very friendly with J. Edgar Hoover, okay? Lyndon Johnson was, okay? Lyndon Johnson and Hoover were buddies. And so what happened is that as King began to blast the administration over these economic issues in Vietnam, because as King thought they were interrelated, you know, the more money we're spending in Vietnam, that takes away from the money that we should be spending at home. All right. Okay. Then the FBI now went ahead and started essentially harassing and surveilling King wherever he went. Okay. You know, and, and, and this got to be pretty bad. All right. Um, and even though King had more or less semi-retired a couple of people in his camp who were suspected of being communists, he did keep up communications with them every once in a while. And this was what Hoover was going to use, okay, uh, against King. And he also created these so-called sex tapes, which was supposed to be King uh, cavorting around in a hotel room uh, with these, I think, three women. And he actually sent them, if you can believe this, he actually sent them to the SCLC headquarters and they were then forwarded to his house. So his wife, you know, had to hear them. Okay. And so now obviously people like Andrew Young and the other higher ups understood what the heck was happening. You know, with the Kennedys dead, with, with JFK dead and Robert Kennedy out of the white house, you know, Lyndon Johnson and, and, and Hoover to a greater extent, Hoover were now free to do, to really harass and, and surveil and try and intimidate King. And this, and this really took a toll on King. He was very, very worried about just how far J. Edgar Hoover was going to go, you know? And so uh, it was very, very, you know, at the, the church committee in 1975, the Senate committee that was run by Senator Frank Church really broke into this whole issue, which was called COINTELPRO, counterintelligence programs that were for all intents and purposes off the books. Hardly anybody knew anything about them. And I should say, Hoover was so far over the edge on this issue that it wasn't just 
uh, King. Okay. If you saw that film about Fred Hampton, okay, um, you know, um, what was the name of it? I actually reviewed it. Uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. Okay. That's a really good example of what the FBI did to a guy who really wasn't even that big of a figure in the whole civil rights struggle, Fred Hampton. It was essentially an assassination. Okay. Essentially, yeah. I mean, you raise a good point. I'm I'm afraid we're running to the end of our time, but maybe you could bring that up next week when we're going to be talking. Oh, with with Malcolm. Okay, yes. Yes. All right. It's a good segue, I might say. Okay. Uh, But, James, I I want to thank you again. I mean, uh, you know, I've had a... It's it's always look forward to seeing you uh, once every week. And thanks for your time, and and we'll see you again next week. Okay, thanks, Mike. Bye-bye. That was James DiEugenio, California-based historian and researcher, speaking on the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. We'll feature another of the great assassinations of the 60s on next week's broadcast. You've been tuned to the Global Research News Hour, a show funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaki the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. The show airs on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on our show, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. Music for this week's broadcast is Shifting Sands by Purple Planet Music, accessible on the site purple-planet.com. I've been your host, and producer Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us. Mm-hmm.